Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. Today's episode is one of many happy returns as we welcome back to the show a prolific and iconic artist and dear friend. As an actor, he's left an indelible mark on such film and television projects as Greg Araki's Kaboom, horror hit Laid to Rest, and fan favorite Terminator, The Sarah Connor Chronicles. As a director and writer, he helmed festival hit Jack Goes Home, and as a music artist, he's released several atmospheric and powerful albums, including the forthcoming Into the Night. Please welcome back to the show a true artist and renaissance man, Thomas Decker. Oh my goodness, what a sexy introduction. I have to have a sexy intro Can for you a just sexy guy. Can walk around with me everywhere and give that introduction wherever I go, just like even <laughs> if I walk in a Starbucks, like that's the, I want that introduction. Can you imagine how exhausting that would become? <laughs> I know, I'd have to pay you a lot to do that. And we're, we're friends, I'd still have to pay you a I know, lot. I'm just kind of trying to imagine what the barista's face would look like. I'm like, wait... Before he gets his American. I think we'd get a slow clap a lot. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, uh, it's been a minute since you've been here. I know. A uh, uh, little over exactly a year, right? Right. Because I came for Halloween of 2017. That's right. You are our first Halloween special here on Dead for Filth. I know. And, you know, what's interesting is uh, you are also the first guest to return in a regular episode. We've had uh, guests come back for uh, specials and uh, out, of, out of continuity, if you will, uh, installments of Dead for Filth. But you're the first person to return for a regular episode, which I'm sure is leading our listeners to wonder how that affects the first question of the show. Because longtime listeners know that whenever a guest comes, I always ask the guests the same first question. Mm-hmm that I ask every guest. But you've been here before. Yes. And you've answered that. Yes. But because I'm a type A methodical crazy person, (laughs) I have been prepared for this moment for over a year. And I have the first, second question. I'm so scared. Yes. So (laughs) allow me to ask you the first question that I plan on asking any guest who comes back for their second time. Okay. And it is simply this. You've already told us why horror. Uh How has your relationship with horror changed over your life? Oh, over over the course of my life. Yes. Wow. Oh man, that's a harder one than the than the initial question. Um, it's changed. I think it. I think your greatest love changes with you, right? As you grow, and I've definitely. I think the core of why horror never changes for you know freaks like us, and it's in its essence, um, as the sort of the com- It's it's our it's our comfort zone for you know us outside of the box people but it's definitely altered certainly in the sense of you know I forget sometimes how much how deeply it it permeates itself in what I do and how I think and what I'm interested in you know I sort of forget you get kind of immersed in that world and then you step out of it for a minute and then you're reminded of like I've had friends visit me Um, a friend of mine came in from Texas who's an even bigger horror hound than us and we just it was like being in a candy shop for a weekend because it was all we did it was all we talked about and i've sort of looked over the evolution of it in my life and it's more than just i think what i realized was growing up it was very much like it was just the films it was just watching horror movies that was the only universe and actually not trying to jump the gun and get to the plug of this record but the record is actually a, a perfect example in that i realized the idea of horror has woven its way into everything that is me you know is my identity it's the music the fashion the the eras the periods the styles it's sort of 
I guess I'd always thought it was just a relationship with movies. And I've suddenly realized, not suddenly, but I've kind of come to realize it really is more than just that. It's a whole culture that is my only culture, really. That is my only universe, I guess. Well, I, I think that makes a lot of sense for you, especially because not only are you a very deeply vetted fan of all of this mm-hmm. stuff, but it, it it is in the very core of you as a person. I mean, you grew up on film sets. As a child, you worked with John Carpenter yeah. and Stuart Gordon mm-hmm. and these people who literally shaped modern horror. Yeah. And so it kind of has to be like one of those things where uh, a lot of us come to the culture of horror in our own way, mm-hmm. but very few people are literally baptized by it. Yeah, like, it's a through very born this way situation. Yeah. yeah, and I think it was so ingrained in me in in because of that, because of those reasons you just said, that I didn't, I wasn't aware of it until later. Aware of it in the sense of like, oh, that's actually what I'm specifically drawn to. It just felt like that was all there was to be drawn to. You know what I mean? And sort of in adulthood, I've kind of been able to reflect and go, oh, wow, I didn't realize just how much that had seeped into the fabric of everything. Like, it's funny, this uh, brief little aside is, um, you know, preparing all these videos and all this art for this album. I, I said, recently I said to my husband, I said, it's funny, I'm going to need your help with this because this is the first time I'm actively thinking of something having sex appeal and all the art he creates is very sexy and all the art I create sexy is not where I initially go I initially go to disturbing harrowing dark frightening like I that's my natural kind of mechanism that's the direction I go in and then I'm like oh but with this I really want to find a kind of a beauty and a magic that is kind of sensual and inviting as opposed to the typical you know just that that's my that's my preset and I suppose that is completely horror related you know that's just how I operate I don't know well and then so of course of course uh, I find that all sexy but not most people do you know well that's what I was going to bring up and before we get into kind of uh the the deeper core of the new album right sorry uh, I keep jumping to that it's just on my mind uh I am kind of fascinated by that thin line between kind of the erotic and the terrifying Mm -hmm. and what do you what do you think it is about you know maybe it's just that sense of both of these things are, are innate humanness at the, at the yeah. very core. Well, and I think both both are extremely titillating. I mean, in the, which I love that word. It just amuses me. But mm-hmm. there's a titillation that comes with fear and with sex appeal. You know, there's a it's there is an erotic release in um, not certainly not in real violence, but there shouldn't be. But in the sort of the dark heartedness of the danger, I suppose is what I'm saying. Not It's the danger of horror and fantasy and where is it going and what's happening that is seductive and alluring. So I definitely, and you know, most of the greatest artists in, that, that operate in that universe, I think, employ both at the same time right. in their own weird way, you know. Well, yeah, and I know that you and I share a great love for art house horror. Yes. And I always think about especially like Italian horror movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's interesting. I was thinking about this on the drive here, how uh, there's a new Suspiria out right yes, now. Yes, which I'd love to talk to you about. And uh, But I don't know if you remember, you and I went and saw uh, Sus- uh, Suspiria screening with Goblin. Yes, we did. Which is also kind of a nice tie into this episode with the music of horror yes, and everything. and they were a huge inspiration. Uh, but <clears throat> there is something 
about Argento's work, uh, when I think of the original Suspiria or uh, Tenebrae, uh-huh. uh, or you know, uh, even um, opera. I love opera. There's something inherently sexy about all of those yeah. movies, which maybe to like me, like reporting this to like someone on the street who is not firmly vetted or in- interested in the genre, mm-hmm. they'd be like, "What disturbing things happen to you in your life?" Yeah, I don't think sexy? my mother would would agree that you know the work of Argento is sexy, but I do. But I think I think it's it's beyond just the the titillation of it. I think there is an objectification that occurs in certain kinds of horror. Clive Barker does it too. It's uh it, in a different mm-hmm. in a different way. But there is this uh it's almost watching this horrifying action through a fetishized lens. It's yes. Um to the point where it becomes almost fantastical. Yeah. Well, and I think that's where there are a lot of confusion and misconception from, you know, that's why we've had these backlashes against the genre so many times. Right. Is this idea that it's kind of over sexualizing, you know, violence and and, you know, that's been the argument for forever from right. critics and et cetera. But I think it actually I don't I I read a quote recently that I love, too, which I this doesn't really tie into the sexy thing, but it it was someone I can't remember who it was said that. You know, the people who don't watch horror films take it infinitely more seriously than the people who do. And I, what I mean by, what I think he meant by that was not that we don't take it seriously. It is our most beloved art form. But we know what it is and we're looking at it at, for what it is, not sort of from some puritanical, terrified, shut off kind of <clears throat> viewpoint. I think we know, depending on, you know, we know if it's an art house horror film with a with a serious point or a kind of psychological commentary we can but we also know when it's just a release of fun and ease and comfort well i think that you know the key term there is art and art form Mm -hmm. uh one of the more recent uh trends of discussion that have been happening on uh episodes of dead for filth in in the last like few have been this idea of uh people who uh, create horror art tend to get their demons out yeah, And I think that, that is really interesting what you said, that the people who don't watch horror movies take the content far more seriously than the people who do. Because I think we do recognize the art of it mm-hmm. and the necessity of it. Mm-hmm. And one of the most oft-repeated phrases from me on this show, uh, because I find it, it continues to be relevant, is something that Wes Craven said about how we don't go to see horror films for fear, we see them for release. Yeah, And I think that when you take that into account and you understand the mechanism of art and what the artist is trying to achieve with horror Mm -hmm. uh i never buy this this you know conservative backlash of like oh well they watched violent movies so it made them violent i think you know that still comes down to parenting and mental health and all sorts of things i have grown up watching these movies i love these movies and i am pretty much uh harmless uh and Mm -hmm. In fact, I don't even kill spiders. Like I feel bad. So like I'm you know, too frightened of spiders. To but kill them. I I think about how uh, you know there is something about these movies. We psychologically put things into them, and we're able to let go of our darkness. Yeah. And so I don't think that movies and music and art uh, are to blame. They are usually what rescues us instead. Well, and this is I mean. I remember when I was growing up, it you know, I think I was about 10. I can't remember the exact year, but I think I was about 10 and I was actually, of all things, doing a Disney show in Canada. Was this Honey, um, I Shrunk the Kids? Yes, <laughs> with, when I met Stuart Gordon. Yeah. And uh, I remember, you know, I'd grown up on 
Um, the classics, as we discussed last time because of my dad's video collection. So I already knew Carrie and The Exorcist and The Shining and Halloween and all the all the you know classic greats. But I remember that was the year that I first saw Scream, which was kind of the the new wave of current modern horror that that was happening. And I remember I saw it. I had pneumonia and I was in a hotel room in Studio City with my mom. I don't know why we were in a hotel. I cannot remember. And it was on, you know, pay-per-view or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I instantly was just obsessed. I mean, Scream for like a good year was like pretty much all I talked about. Right. My whole point in bringing this up was I remember this era specifically because it was sort of the re-explosion of the slasher film. It was Marilyn Manson uh, was at his peak. It was when everything was kind of really, you know, leaning to that hard. It was we'd had grunge and then it was kind of going in even further and into the theatricality of darkness and et cetera. And then Columbine happened. Mm-hmm. And even though I wasn't even a teenager yet, I hadn't even hit puberty yet, I remember you could feel this this uh cloud of concern. You know, because all I all I listened to, I had my like, you know, my my whatever. But I remember I loved the Bride of Chucky soundtrack, which was all pretty heavy hardcore right. metal and rock, and and so then that led to I got into like Judas Priest and Alice Cooper and you know <clears throat> all the and us. Also, I really got into Rammstein pretty early. Um, but you know, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I, German German industrial rock. I got yeah. into Rammstein because of David Lynch. Right, which actually, funnily enough, I got into Rammstein first and then saw Lost Highway years later and was like, oh, Rammstein's in it. But yes, I know a lot of people were yeah. introduced. He kind of was one of their, you know, big pint, big supporters. But anyway, my point was, I remember like in my lifetime dealing with as a kid, there was like this. And then there was this this consensus that it was I think there was another murder by kids who'd watched Scream and wore the mask or something. Maybe that was a few years later. I don't know. But my point is, I remember there was this this direct correlation then and i think it always exists that oh well you know allowing that kind of quote unquote they would never think of it as art but allowing that into your subconscious leads to violence and darkness and what's so ironic about that to me is that the people especially young people who really love it it is like you said it's the release it's the it's the support system it's the catharsis it's what's there i didn't have any friends really you know my own age because i was a weird kid and so it's not it never incited anger or it never incited anything negative in me if anything it just led me to be creative yeah and that's always been like my point and it was definitely the thrust of of this show when it was created is that horror and that intersection with the queer community Mm -hmm. at least it is a genre of otherness and outsiders. Yeah. And I think, you know, while there is a huge celebration of horror as a genre across many, many different demographics, right. you do find people who feel like they're on the outside or drawn to it. And I don't ever think it's for violent reasons. I think no. it's because it is, a, you know, marching to a different drum. And who understands that better than people who feel like they're on the outside? And I... uh I was in high school when Columbine happened, and I remember it was a very, you know, palpable shift. Yeah. That, you know, I I went to high school in a very uh, small town in uh, western Pennsylvania where it was not unheard of that kids would come to school after going hunting. And they would just have their gun rack on the back of the car. And that was never a thing that anyone thought of until that day. 
Oof. And the next day, everything changed. But it wasn't the kids who brought their guns to school that were initially like, should we be worried about that person? It was like, oh, that kid in the black jacket. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was always. And kid I was just all like, black. yeah, it was always the, this kind of like weird persecution. And I'm like, that kid just wants to listen to, you know, uh, Judas Priest and, and hang out. <laughs> so basically, out you were talking about me yeah. when you, yes, even at 10, that was I was already on that path. No, I mean, I do think also you were saying, you know, what you were asking me what has cha- what has changed with horror two over my life, and I think, like I was trying to very badly articulate when we started, it was that realizing when I said that it kind of permeates, it, it weaves its way into every facet and interest in my of my life. Right. Um, I think it really. It's one of the. It's strange because it is so mainstream successful, right? right? I mean, it's not like, it's it's not like this total fringe, you know, universe that it maybe once was. Although, but I think it's always been loved by people. The genre since its invention is, you know, it's been it's, since the dawn of time has been beloved by people. But it really does give you an instant community. Yes. And I think that's what I meant was realizing that like, oh, it's 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 like you and what's funny is it can bring, you know, people of all types together mm-hmm. in the same way that, you know, but in a almost a purer way than religion is supposed to, because religion comes with rules and constraints and et cetera, et cetera. But with right. horror, it's kind of like, oh, we can be polar opposite, you know, types of people, gender, whatever, but we have this in common and we can instantly have something to talk about for hours you know it, it's really true i mean <laughs> uh, i do a lot of horror conventions throughout a year and uh just like the the difference of all the people who come it's just kind of really fascinating yeah. from moms to, yeah to like punk kids and- i know and it's all just a, but there's this one passion yeah that's in common with everybody people love spooky shit yeah <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I love how intertwined your life is with the genre. Like even when you talk about, uh, you know, b- having pneumonia and watching Scream in a hotel room and being obsessed with it to then, you know, what, years later working for Kevin Williamson yeah. on television. Yeah. It's just like wild how it it always kind of finds its way back to you. I know. It's weird. And it's funny because for years, because I've always done so much genre work, um, you know, I used to get asked this question a lot. And it used to kind of irritate me because just because it's funny to me that people think when you're an actor, like you are always the one deciding what projects you're going to do and you are the one in charge of what you, which is very rare. Like the majority of actors just take what they can get. They're not, you know, picking and choosing constantly. But I was always asked, you know, oh, so you must, you, you seem to, the majority of what you do is genre, you must sort of seek that out and look for that directly. And I never did or certainly didn't think I did at the time. And I didn't consciously. But I think the reason that is is just because it's, you know, it's what's in you, what you put out comes back, you know, to you in that direction. So I think it makes total sense. Again, I didn't realize until a few years ago, I kind of started being like, okay, no, like this is... This is me. This is my identity, and I need to embrace it. It was even when making my first movie, I, I, I it was the first horror script I'd written mm-hmm. out of ten plus scripts. But I and I kind of thought it was amusing at the time. I was like, oh wow, of course the first movie I'm going to make is a horror, is a you know dark horror psychological thriller. And then I realized 
yes, of course that is the movie I made. And that is the movie I should make. And right. I and especially after having made it, I know that's that is what I will want to make for the rest of my life. Just because just watching an audience watch watch a horror film when you've made it is the greatest feeling in the world. I mean, right. And I know that you probably can't talk a lot about it right now, but uh, I do know that you are in the process of working on your next movie. Yeah. And that exists in the genre space as well. Yes. Right? Yeah. That is, I think we talked about it very cryptically at the time. And again, it's, you know, been a year, but these movie, movies take a long time to get made properly. Boy, don't I know. <laughs> yeah. And um, just got to be patient. But um, yeah, that's a, it's a, it's another, you know, it's, it's definitely in the horror art film universe that you and I both adore. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a psychological story, but it also brings in, um, there's a lot of commentary kind of on um, the current situation of the world. It's, you know, it's about, it's about a mother who is a, is a recovered alcoholic. Her teenage son ran away from her 11 years ago. She's hasn't known what's happened to him since. And all of a sudden she gets this invitation to his, um, marriage to his husband, to his partner. And so she's faced with this implosion of questions of, okay, so, you know, she didn't know her son was gay. She didn't know if he was alive. She did. She doesn't know why he's reaching out to her now. And so she goes to this lavish uh, wedding celebration and instantly knows something is not right here. And is this really her son? Are these people who they say they are? What What is going on? But so it kind of then is a 48-hour... Um, you know, a horror, horrifying romp, I'll put it that way, but it still has the, the door open of, okay, so what if this is really, are we just seeing from her perspective? And, it, you know, it's a lot about her guilt and her remorse over her her addiction and her bad parenting. So it's, it's a pretty layered human psychological study slash, you know, haunted house movie. I don't know. It's, a, it's fun. Well, I can't wait to see it. Oh, yeah, well, well, me too. When it gets made, <laughs> any day now would be great. No, but it's it is it is happening. But it's one of those that like, I I've got a few scripts that I was like, okay, yeah, we can we can make it with very little money, and let's just do it right now. And I was like, this one is not one of them. This one really has to be done at the proper level. So. Well, fingers crossed. Yes, thank you. Uh, so last time you were here, as you pointed out, you were here for Halloween a year ago. Uh, yeah. But we just had a Halloween pass, and I know that you love Halloween. Well, obviously. So uh, I'm just wondering, um, just for you know, old time's sake, what was it that you got up to this this past October? Well, I guess I'm continuing my, my run of 80s uh, cult favorite costumes. So mm-hmm. as you know, last year I did... Uh, they live the John Carpenter. I did the Alien President or whatever. Right. And then this year I did um, Pris from Blade Runner. Oh. Which was very fun. I don't know how I or why I thought on Earth I had the right to wear a bodysuit and nothing else. But I, but I, <laughs> but I did. And um, yeah, there's a lot of what is it called, mammal toe or what is it called when men get the, uh, get the can- m- moose knuckle? M- moose knuckle. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, there was a lot of that action happening. No, um, and what did we do? We didn't. I didn't. Uh, I went to a couple parties, and my best friend flew in from Portland, and we had a really good time. But yeah, and just and mainly just uh, had a lot of movie marathons. I was working it on this record like the entire time which was kind of perfect right because the spirit of halloween really got to kind of 
weave its way into the music. Um, and but yes, I had I had horror marathons on um, constantly, and uh, that was fun. We had a lot of popcorn. Did you see watching. anything this year that you had never seen before? Um. You know what I did? Shit. What, what what were they? I saw a couple things for the first time. Oh, I uh finally saw Night of the Demons. Oh, it's a delight. Which was very fun. Right. Um that lipstick scene alone mm-hmm. uh, was definitely exciting. Yeah, so I saw Night of the Demons. That was very fun. Uh and I swear I saw another. Oh, I hadn't seen obviously I'd seen it, but I hadn't seen Fright Night in a very long time. And so I gave that one a whirl again. I love Fright Night. Me too. I have I have such schemes and dreams for that. Well, you and I text when I was watching it, I think we were talking about, it was so funny how, you know, I don't know if it, I doubt it was intended, but the subtext that he doesn't seem to really give a shit about this lovely girl that he's dating. He's just sort of obsessed with this man next door. It's like a weird, The whole movie's kind of like hella gay. Yeah, I mean, because Stephen <laughs> Jeffries, who is his friend, uh, is is like outrageously over the top drag queen kind of gay. Yeah, uh, and then like um, Jerry Dandridge, the vampire next door, and his like weird but like oiled up like manservant. I know. Yeah, uh, and then of course, like there's just sort of like that fay like personality of Roddy McDowell in the whole thing. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, I mean, it's not quite as overt as say Nightmare on Elm Street two. But then again, what is? Okay, let's talk about Nightmare on Elm Street 2. <laughs> because in the Nightmare on Elm Street remake, uh-huh. you played a character named Jesse. Uh-huh. And of course, the lead character in Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is Jesse. Yeah. But your characters are not the same. But how much would you have loved to have played oh my that God. guy? I and Well, mainly I would have just loved if New Line was going to remake that one. That would Because I would have been like, wow, that's a really interesting move. Because, um, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, I actually... Um, yeah, and I married a Jesse too. That's, what a strange is the world of Jesse's. But um, <laughs> I just there's like a compilation online. Have you seen it on YouTube of like all the like hilariously over the top gay moments from, from the original yeah, from two. Nightmare yeah. Two, and it is just fucking funny to watch. I just can't believe that that movie happened. Frankly. I, <laughs> But, you know, there's something so delightful about it. Oh, of course. Yeah, it's always listed on horror lists as the gayest movie ever. And I can't, yeah. like, disagree. No, it, it, yeah. Because I'd heard that for forever, and it was actually one of the last nightmares that I for, that I hadn't seen. It was one of the last ones to watch. I still mm-hmm. haven't seen one of them. I haven't seen um, Freddy's Dead. Is that it? The, oh, yeah, yeah. The, the fifth one? Is that the fifth one? Sixth. So, okay. have not seen that one. That's the only one I've... I've missed out on. But yeah. You can watch it wearing uh, 3D lenticular glasses. Oh, is it 3D? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, There's I, a Goo Goo Doll song, like really oh. treat yourself. Yeah. I, watched the, I watched the 3D Friday. What is that? Friday Part 3. 3, yeah. yeah. I watched that Home Alone on a Rainy Day with 3D glasses on it. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm doing in my free time. You know what? I think that you're using your free time very well. Uh, accurately? Yeah. yeah, good. Okay. So you had mentioned uh, that you were uh, working on your new album over the course of Halloween mm-hmm. and Halloween seeped into it. And what I have to uh, share as we dig into this particular topic is uh, I had the distinct joy that you were sending me tracks as you were finishing them. I know. I'm sorry. No, I, lo- I loved it uh, because honestly, while I was doing my own Halloween makeup this year, I was listening to some of your tracks and it was like really kind of cool to kind of oh, hear really? where you were. Um, so yeah, you are here today partially because you mm-hmm. have a new album coming out. Yeah. Uh, Into the Night. 
Yes. <laughs> and it's coming out on December 15th. Correct. <laughs> and you, uh, you know, last time you were here, we talked about the fact that uh, music has always been kind of part of your life. Uh, y- your dad was in the opera. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had previously made an album ca- called Cyanotic. Cyanotic? Mm-hmm. Correct. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's a word that scares me. I know, it's a tongue twister. Yes. <laughs> uh, and this is your first album since that, right? Yes. Well, what, uh, yeah. So I released that album, and you got to remember, that album came out, which is insane to me, like 10 years ago. Um, I released it when I was like, I think, 20 or 21. So yeah, it would have been 20, I think. But I'd been making that record since I was like, I don't know, 16 or something. Like, that was a really young record. And mm-hmm. Electronica, I was, you know, still learning and discovering. And it was still kind of, there was older technology, but blah, blah, blah. So yes, I'm proud that that album exists and I had fun with it. But, you know, it's definitely like, I look at that almost as like my childhood, like, you know, that's my like, you know, when you make a home video as your first movie, that's kind of what that album was to me. And I'm not bashing it because actually a lot of people really like that record and, and so do I, but it definitely was, you know, of my youth. And then, and then I did release another album, but not under my name. It was a it was a it was kind of an art collective called Zero Time Zero that was formed as a sort of way for like I handled most of the music, but it was a kind of collection of just a lot of people that we both know and you know mutually. And we did a lot of video art and a lot of performance art, and there was a fashion component and photographers, and yeah, it was just kind of about building a little universe all with one kind of vibe in mind. And it was really fun, and we released an album called Equal Zero, but it was kind of like, because it was a part of the whole project, the album just kind of came out, and we didn't really do much with it. We were kind of like, okay, well, that's that's done, and that's part of it. So right. this is my first solo um, record under my name, uh, yeah, in like 10 years. <clears throat> and I'm very honored that you chose to come here to Dead for Phil. You're the first person I'm speaking to about it. Yeah. And I've, I've heard the whole album, which yeah. I'm grateful that you sent it in advance. I like, I'm so excited to talk to you about this because, uh, I think people are going to really dig what you're doing. Uh, and it's, it's what we've been talking about up to this point in the interview Uh, If you've listened to what Thomas has said about horror being part of his core and, uh, you know, if you if you know some of these influences that we've been discussing, it's there. Like when I listen to this album, I can hear John Carpenter. Yeah. And I can hear Pino DiNaggio and Goblin Goblin. And I can hear some David Bowie. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I, I can. But it's also so uniquely you. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, what I really, I'm just, I'm, I'm very fascinated by, uh, you know, on one hand, I'm like, some of these would be great synth scores for horror movies. And then others are like great, like goth tracks <laughs> or like dance tracks. And uh, I I really just want to dig into this, into the night. Let's go into the night. And, uh, tell me about, you know, you your album a decade ago, mm-hmm. then you do this collective and now this. Mm-hmm. And but that's a journey. There's a lot of space in between music yeah. projects. Why this? Why now? Um, so I hadn't I hadn't put out any music of any kind, really, other than little bits for film scores, including like my own and then a couple other movies in the last five years. Mm-hmm. And that it was kind of when I realized that was a shock to me because making music is so particularly the kind of music that I make, the fact that I make electronica, it's music that 
the thing that I love most about it is I can do it completely alone. I can do it out of my home. You know, I, it's because, as you know, to achieve other things that we love to do, to make films, to put shows on stage, it's an inordinate amount of people and a lot of talking. And yeah. the beauty of making music for me is that it's something I can just kind of disappear into and handle and complete on my own. And so the fact that I hadn't made anything for so long when I realized that I was kind of stunned and it was kind of that like emergency, okay, I have to, I have to just make music. And when it started, I did not, for the first time, I did not sit down with like, okay, I'm making a record. This is the genre. This is the sound. This is who it's for. This is the demographic. I didn't think any of those things. I just sat down and started playing what I was hearing. And I basically selfishly made the whole thing very much only with myself in mind. I really just thought, okay, this is what I want to hear. I'm not going to concern myself with who it's for. And I think oddly because of that way of doing it, it's out of probably all the music I've ever made, people have responded to it, the few who've heard it, the most favorably. And by the way, I want to point out the reason why I was bombastically bombarding you with tracks was because I knew you would get it. And it was very in our wheelhouse Mm. and our, and also, but I feel that includes your listeners as well. I feel it's very much, it's something that is understood fully by a specific kind of group, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that uh, I even said this to you when we were texting back and forth about it. There were a number of tracks that I could start visualizing scenes in my brain Mm -hmm. that like this music could go to and I think that that speaks to the cinematic side of who you are I think that even um if you don't intend to subconsciously there's still a story it's 100 percent and a lot of a lot of the tracks on this album are instrumental you Mm -hmm. know there's a lot that I'm not vocally present on at all which actually for me is the most fun because the funny thing is I've never felt myself as a quote-unquote singer-songwriter. I've never been one of those people who, you know, could sit in front of 10 people with a guitar and sing them my story. Like, I love the singing element. I love the performing element, but I far, my passion is in the production of the music and that's sort of my inner little composer film scorer. And so every track, you know, I'm so glad that came across. It, it, It was born out of a visual... You know, there's the, the first track on the album is called Lightstorm, and it's an instrumental. It's probably my favorite track on the record, but it's the most Carpenter, and it's the most, um, and it was, it kind of just, it was about that dark. So it is, it's almost like a, a like an 80s synth score to a movie that has not been made, is kind of what this album is. And um, I, I don't know, I think also what I wanted to point out that you basically said again because you understand it completely um a big shift in making this record versus anything else i've made was i think when you're young and an artist or a fledgling artist or whatever you are consumed completely by the idea of you have to always appear 100 percent original you have to be completely unique you have to have a sound that nobody else has you know even gotten close to well the bottom line is as i've grown up, I've realized that we all have extremely strong influences and artists that we admire and genres that we are drawn to. And the fact of the matter is, is that no matter 
how strongly you use your inspiration, it's still coming through you. And it's still going to thus be uniquely yours. Yes. And it took me a while to figure that out. And by the time I came around to this record, I fully embraced all of the influences. And I said, you know, I'm going to wear them proudly on my sleeve. So there's everything from, you know, on the film side, there's, like you said, the Carpenter, Goblin, Danagio, the Vangelis Blade Runner score, a lot of those, you know, a lot of those influences. And then on the music side, just the 80s in general, but New Wave, Goth, New Order, Depeche Mode, you know, I really, you'll hear them blatantly as influences on the album, but I, I felt actually in a weird way this was my first adult record kind of reflecting on my whole life. Right. And all those things and artists and sounds are, that is my life. That is who I am. So it's this oddly vast record and very personal, intimate album at the same time. I can totally see that. Uh, you know what I was thinking while you were t you're talking about the the interconnectedness of of the different influences, whether mm -hmm. it's score or you know certain bands or artists that you like. Uh, I was just thinking about how you hadn't seen Night of the Demons until this year, I know. because there's an amazing scene outside of the lipstick scene, the dancing where scene? yeah yeah where Angela, possessed by the demon, dances to Bauhaus and seduces uh -huh. that guy. Yeah, and what's weird is when you sent me a few of these tracks, I remember thinking. I'm like, this music could be like in that scene from Night of the Demons where she like gothily, I made up a new word. I'm gothily. A, yeah, I'm an English major, I'm allowed. Uh, where she like in a very goth fashion seduces that man and I'm just like, yeah, I can see this. There's there's I, seduction in this music. That is but, the greatest compliment ever, by the way, that this could work in the dance scene in Night of the Demons because I actually thought that scene was incredible. Like to me, that's the standout. Oh, it's great. Kind of really just batshit wonderful scene but no you're absolutely right and i think you know that i think it's the track that we're going to play today but that that really um links into what you're talking about yes so as uh thomas just alluded to i have a little bit of a surprise for you all so hang uh hang out till the end of the episode uh in addition to coming and talking about his album for the first time ever here on dead for filth thomas has been so gracious to allow us to uh, debut a track here no on dead for heard. Filth that no one has heard uh and we're gonna play it uh towards the end of the episode for you so this is your uh, a dead for filth first to have some music and um, we're excited about it and we're going to we're going to do that in just a bit. Perfect. Uh <laughs> so talk to me a little bit about some of these tracks. Mm -hmm. I know that uh you had mentioned to me that each one of them has a bit of a story because mm -hmm. they're connected to you uh personally. Yeah. Now the story that we uh the song that we're going to play today uh <laughs> is a song called Boys and Eyeliner. Yes. Uh tell me about <laughs> that. So Boys and Eyeliner um it's a seventh track on the record. It's uh, it's really about the first boy I had a crush on when I was, I think, 15. And it's twofold. It's about, it was about A, discovering, uh, it was about growing up and discovering, okay, so I also like boys. That was, a, you know, mm -hmm. that was a big turning point. Um, but it was also, he was, you know, we were both like 15, but he was, he was a goth kid. And I hadn't really been introduced to particularly 80s uh, kind of, I don't know what the right, new, new, new wave goth, I guess. And so through meeting this, this guy, 
you know, he introduced me single-handedly to Susie and the Banshees and Depeche Mode and Nine Inch Nails and The Cure and that whole kind of universe. It wasn't just music. It was like it was a whole zeitgeist. And and we were both horror freaks. And and so the song is twofold. It's It's an ode to that era and universe and you can hear in the sound of the it sounds like an 80s song right it's that you know it, it totally is an homage to the genre that i'm talking about in the song but it's also about you know uh, sexual awakening and and discovery and i think that that realizing that that relationship or I mean, what it was—it wasn't a relationship. It was just a—it was a infatuation, an infatuation, yeah, yeah. Um, and an unrequited infatuation. Um, but yeah, so so that's it's things like that. By the way, you know, this is the first time I've also been able to feel completely free as an artist to sing about, talk about anything. You know, right. so pretty much it, there's no any secrets that I ever once had or anything like that it's all out there in this in this album you know in a a not I didn't I also should point out I really didn't want the album to be an overtly intellectual exercise this is a feeling album this is Mm -hmm. a mood album this is an album I don't want you to kind of sit there and dissect what each song is about lyrically it's more about going with the vibe of it following you know that's kind of what the title is about I, I made the whole record at night I did not play a single note in daylight right and kind of felt free to wander off into mysterious zones. So it's definitely a feeling album, but there are stories and narrative arcs and and very personal details divulged um, in each song. But that song in particular, um, and it's a kind of it's my nostalgic song. You know, it's yeah. it's a uh, there's a lot of nostalgia in the whole record because it's it's harking back to the the music and film universe that that makes me feel comfortable and reflect on kind of when I was that 15-year-old kid discovering everything for the first time and now it's like the adult self looking back on all of it. And I am interested in what you just said about this is kind of one of the first times where you are can be completely free and mm-hmm. not guarded. And obviously last time you were here we had talked about how uh, just recently, you publicly, you've, all, you've privately yeah. been out for a while, but mm-hmm. publicly came out, you got married. Uh, and what has, how has that been a changed your, your course of your art? Like, do you feel like you don't have to answer to anyone but you now? Yeah, I think, you know, at first, everybody was kind of saying, oh, you must feel so different. It must be. So, and it really didn't feel different initially. Right. It just kind of felt like, and I didn't. I think a lot of people use um, use their coming out as kind of a, a, a leaping point for a lot of attention, and 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 I really didn't want that. I was very, you know, I kind of did it because it was a specific circumstance, and then it was done, and that was great, and that was all I that was all I wanted was just to okay, there it is, and I'm open, and you know, no secrets. Um, I think subsequently in the time that's passed, uh, again, I've been surprised at how. It has affected, um, it has affected me as an artist and to not feel, and also what's affected me a lot in a great way is realizing that nobody has an issue with, you know, and, and again, harking back to what we were saying about the horror community, it's another great thing about this world is that, you know, nobody gives a shit about 
those kind of issues. No, you know, yeah. it's this is not of interest to us. We care, obviously, but not in a sense, not in a way of like, oh, well, I'm going to judge you. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's like, okay, well, that's great, that's cool. Now, what do you got? What are you bringing creatively to the table? Like, that's what I've sort of felt, and it's been very freeing. Um, yeah. And yeah, I just feel like there's no, there's, and it's not even, it's not just the, the coming out portion of it. It's also the turning 30, um, you know, just having the, 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 the slightly more adult viewpoint on the world. Right. Yes. <clears throat> well, we all have an evolution. Yeah, life is, it's its always evolving, isn't it? It sure is. <laughs> uh, so looking through the, the tracks, you mentioned Lightstorm. We talked about Boys and Eyeliner. There's so many great uh, <laughs> evocative titles, Reaper, Into the Night, which the album is named for, Dance of the Sorcerer. Uh <laughs> Are there any other like t- tidbits or snippets about any of these other songs you want to share before we we? Yes, uh, well, particularly for your listeners, um, like an example, you know that what I what the audience that I'm really wanting to target, and it's a it's a it's one of those audiences that is really hard to articulate, but they're people, they're you and me, and you know. Darren Stein and there's a lot of the people that I've shared this with Mm -hmm. really it's so awesome that they just get they get you know you you get it completely and I guess that is this kind of crossover of the queer horror count it's a it's an it's an album for the counterculture it's an album for you know the us's of the world and um so I'm really wanting so in a funny way there's a lot of horror film even references in this in this album and inspiration there's a track called Dark Side um that there's like a lot of little tiny gems that I can't wait for you know the horror aficionado out there to pick up where they come from so there's like um there's a riff on the three note uh synth doo-doo-doo from Halloween when we see the shape. The recurring main lyric is me whispering oh what a rush which some horror fans out there I'm sure will know where that comes from. There's uh, the bass line is a kind of variation on uh, the bass line from They Live. Um, so it's just loaded. That song's really fun because it's loaded with and the, and the inspiration for it was literally I really wanted a song that wasn't quite so a deep in in scope and it was more just kind of something that you could kind of dream to mm-hmm. and it really was i joke about it but it was true i had this this f- image and idea of what if like freddie and michael and jason and pinhead and all of us maybe even chucky just like all went to a nightclub and how amazing that would be to like all be on the dance floor like all getting you know lost in the lost in the haze together. So that song was literally an image of like every major horror movie icon and I dancing at um, a club. I love the mental image of all of them at a club. I don't know why I'm like picturing like <laughs> Fault Line or the Abbey or something. Oh yeah, like, yeah, yeah. some dark yeah. red lined old gay club like <laughs> at, like old gay bar that Freddie knows everybody <laughs> and Pinhead is like the one where everybody's like, well, he's intense, but you know, yeah. he can give you a good time. I also want just <laughs> enough fog machine that they keep losing Chucky. Yeah, well, he's, 
Chucky's the one who like he doesn't really approve of it, but he goes along with it just because you know he knows everybody in the group. I think we lose Chucky. <laughs> uh, anyway, so there's little tidbits like that that you know little things that um, there's even actually a little sample of Miss Duvall from The Shining on the record, which makes me happy. Um, well, it's for all of these reasons that uh, when we talked about this, it uh, it really made sense to me to have this little album release party. Well, I wanted it uh, you to be. This has to be the first introduction because this is who it's for. I'm so excited, and I, you know, listening to it, I, I 100% believe that. Like, I can hear all of it. It felt like an album for horror fans, for queer horror fans, and for 80s the, that world of music. And yeah. by the way, the one thing I want to specify. You know, which is nice that I could say this before the album comes out. It was, I would say, oh, it was a balancing act, but it wasn't really. But I was aware that I never wanted any of this to feel like parody. I never wanted it to feel like, okay, so he's going out of his way to make it sound like, you know, these 80s horror synth scores. And it's a kind of tongue in cheek, right. like almost parody of it. And I, the, the real thing about this album is it's really not this, although the, evoking all those sounds and tones and is just because it's what I love. It's, right. you know, there's nothing about it that I'm like, oh, listen to this, like, tinny synth. Isn't that funny? There isn't. It's a really, like, I, I mean it. It's it's a love letter mm -hmm. to everything that we adore, you know. And speaking of love letters, while we were <clears> talking, uh, you did mention uh, a couple notes from Carpenter's Halloween soundtrack. You mentioned They Live. Uh -huh. Uh, so this is a nice segue into, we've talked a little bit about influences, but mm -hmm. bec because this is Dead for Filth and horror is our main gig, yeah. uh, what to you are some of the best horror scores? Oh my God. I mean, because you got to remember growing up, that was, that was, that was really my introduction to music, period, was right. horror scores. Um, so I think the, be okay, the best horror scores, here we go. It's, I think Pino Donaggio's score for Carrie is one of the most just gorgeously realized full orchestra, you know, it's big, grand mm -hmm. score. Um, I think it's hard because it's, the majority of it is non-original music, but the score, quote unquote, for The Shining is pretty incredible. But of course, it's mainly Ligeti and Penderecki and Bella Bartok all kind of chopped up and messed with by Wendy Carlos. And But that overall is a really great score. I think, um, of course... Carpenter's scores for, I mean, almost all of them, pretty right. much. I can't. Oh, by the way, I thought of you. Track six is a is an homage to um, Starman, which I know is your one of your favorite Carpenters. I love Starman. I know, and nobody ever brings up Starman, so I thought of you when I was anyway. Um, yeah. So any Carpenter score, um, I loved. I also loved like certain Christopher Young scores because they were so. Again, big. They're mm -hmm. just kind of big, dramatic um, scores. What else? I mean, obviously the Bernard Herrmann stuff for Hitchcock. I mean, right. is like unparalleled. Um, I also think actually, it's not thought of as a horror score, but it's so invasive and in your face is the Wendy Carlos score for Clockwork Orange. Actually, even though it's this kind of, it's almost like manic horror, you know, because it's all these buzzy, insane synths and Moogs and Korgs and. Um, I don't know. I don't know. What about you? What are some of your favorites? I'm I'm sure I'm, I know I'm blanking on like. Well, I, as already referenced, <clears throat> I'm a huge fan of uh, Goblin. Of course. I, I think Goblin scores uh, both for Suspiria and Tenebrae are uh, amazing. Um, There's a little nod to the Tenebrae. Da 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 
No, 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 that's in there too. Uh, I love that. And we saw Goblin together mm-hmm. um, a number of many moon ago. Uh, of course, I love John Carpenter's scores. Uh, I really, really think that um, I think James Horner did the score for Forbidden World. Someone's going to tell me I'm wrong. Otherwise, oh, but, I don't yeah. know, actually, but I don't I'm not uh, I don't know that one. But uh, it's it's a it's a Roger Corman uh, deep cut. But the, the score is pretty good. Um yeah, I don't know. I just uh, definitely most Italian horror movies I get into, yeah. like really most of Pino Donaggio stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fabio, Fabio Frizzi for all <clears throat> yep. the Fulci movies. Uh, yeah, I'm a big fan. There's so many. Yeah. I mean, it's I, I again. I know I'm blanking on. I think the score of uh, the original Nightmare on Elm Street is really good. It's great with that kind of like echoing reverb. Oh yeah, and he's using those kind of those big fat bassy synths, and then the little. Yeah, I, no, the, the original Nightmare is great. Obviously, I mean... Oh, Harry Manfredini. All of the Friday the yeah. 13th movies are so great. I love <laughs> Harry. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Well, I, what's great about those scores is, like, they're just shameless. Yeah. Like, it's like, we're just going to pile on every shrieking string and every, like, staccato link. I think the thing that everyone forgets about uh, the Friday the 13th franchise is the uh, main title track for part three is like a literal disco bop it's like yeah yeah it is like a disco jam that uh harry manfredini is just like i'm gonna do a score but we're in the middle of the 80s now well, so we gotta that's get... kind of though that is like my biggest jam which is what you you've heard is this album is like this crossover that happened in the 80s that was so incredible that it worked of like horror score and disco you know it's kind of like it? it's 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 like Music just made for Halloween party, basically. But like, yeah, the Night of the Demons, you know, the big opening credits, you know, the big like animated whatever, like that track is amazing. Like, it's so good. Speaking of movies made for Halloween parties, uh, music made for Halloween parties, uh, I have yet to mention on the show, and we made it all the way through October, and I don't know how I didn't, but that Kim Petras Halloween album, did you hear that? No. It's amazing. And Elvira's on it. Oh my God, I've got to listen to this. Why don't I know about this? Uh, she just dropped it, I think, on October 1st. It's like... Been it's, living in a hole. It's a mini EP of like seven tracks. Some of them are instrumental, and then others are just like her lurking around, and then Elvira's just there. I remember hearing oh. it. I was like, is that Cassandra? I got very excited. I got to so. get Elvira. I got to get Cassandra in a video for this album. Uh, which actually it leads to something we did not talk about last time you were here. Okay. Yes. Uh, when Elvira returned with Elvira's movie Macabre around 2010, uh-huh. you had the distinction of playing a character uh, in Elvira canon that no one else can lay claim to, and that is Elric, her son. That's right. I played Elvira's son. I technically played Elvira's son twice because I played her son, but not Elvira, Cassandra's son in All About Evil. That's right. And then it was after we'd done All About Evil, she called me and just asked, did I want, and of course, I mean. How do you say no to that? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it was like, you know, my, my dad was obsessed with Elvira. Um, and I, you know, I grew up, of course, it's like, you, she, she's part of the, she's like, a, she's like part of our DNA, like you right. and I. So, yeah. And so it was a crazy, we shot it in one day at some studio on the west side and it was really fun but i remember while we were doing it i kind of kept being like i cannot believe that i'm 
Elvira's son right now. <laughs> well, again, it's just sort of like strange how the horror uh, keeps intertwining and it's part of your DNA. Yeah. Like, again, being obsessed with Scream, working with Kevin Williamson, being obsessed with Elvira, Elvira playing her son. <laughs> I know. I mean, uh, working with John Carpenter and becoming obsessed with Biggest John Carpenter. Fan, yeah, yeah. I, I think that there's something really great that, uh, y- you know, you are both a fan of this, but you're a fixture of this. And that's really kind of a cool thing. Well, I also think we should say just in a general way, I think that horror is one of the few universes where the people who are actually genuine, avid lovers of it actually get hired to positions of importance within the genre. It's very rare. You know, you look at even a lot of the like a, certain people that work at Blumhouse in very high up positions now, I knew as horror bloggers, you know, not that long ago as people who were just there at conventions and covering things because they loved the genre. Yeah. And I can't really think of, you know, you can't really just be a smart, dedicated Star Trek fan and then next thing you're hired by the television studio to like be a producer on stuff. But there's the, right. but I think that... In the horror community, we recognize other people's intelligence and taste level, and we respect it, and we trust it, you know, and I think that's wise to do, frankly. Well, it's a fan-driven genre, and I think that we've seen any time corporations try and make genre, how it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Because there has to be that genuine quality to it. Well, because there's, there's, you know, I'll tell you, this is a story I've never told, but this is a brief little aside. Again... I'm not throwing anybody under the bus or trying to be rude about anybody in any way. Right. But when we were doing the Nightmare on Elm Street remake, um, uh, Drag Me to Hell came out. It was in theaters when we were shooting in Chicago. And so Kyle Gallner and Rooney, Mara and I and a bunch of people, we all wanted to go see it. So we went and we saw it. And a lot of the big mucky mucks that were making Nightmare on Elm Street came with us. And... We all loved Drag Me to Hell. Obviously, it's so over the top. So much of it is so purposefully, you know, stupid. But it's it's a return to Raimi's, you know, Evil Dead roots. And it's a celebration of all that kind of what makes him him. Mm -hmm. And we, the actors, you know, loved it for all its insanity. And all the, you know, corporate people were genuinely stumped how we didn't just think it was just a terrible, bad movie. Right. And we, I remember we were trying to convey to them, like, no, it is quote-unquote bad, but that's part of right. what makes it so special. And they could not grasp that. So that's an example of, you know, when you have the corporate, and again, that's no, they, they, they understand how things work in the mainstream world that I will never understand. So everybody's right. got their own, you know, place of expertise. But it, that was a good example of like, yeah, you need people who genuinely love it behind it. It's true. And I also think uh, it, it speaks a little to something we don't talk about a lot. But the, the thing about cult films is they're cult films for the reason that not everyone gets them. Yeah. And I want not everyone to get them because if everybody liked these movies, then it meant that it would mean there's nothing subversive about it. I agree. And the transgressive element of these movies, whether it's poking fun at the establishment at the mainstream or it's like deconstructing like what makes us outsiders that's what makes them special Mm -hmm. and so you know uh if a movie appeals to everyone they're usually just not that interesting and it's often the flaws that are what lead it to endure exactly you know 
Well, I said endure. I said that very. I like it was very endure. very poised. No. <laughs> so, um, you know, we have talked a little bit about your influences and the fact that you uh, made albums a while ago and have been working mm-hmm. on music, and uh, the fact that you have uh, music roots. Um, now, people who know me uh, and follow me on social media or listen to this show know that I'm a huge fan of a deep dive into cinema. Yes. And what uh, I occasionally like to do is go like very, very far back into someone's filmography. Uh-oh. And though these are your albums, uh, you you know, you made an album uh, when you were 20 and now mm-hmm. an album here and this collaborative album in between. You have been singing in the industry for a long time. Yes. And uh, there was a stretch of time oh, when no. you were providing the voices uh, for L- Littlefoot. Littlefoot and, and Fievel yes. in the uh, VHS <laughs> sequels to An American Tale in the Land Before Time. Correct. And you sang a number of tracks I on did. those. Uh, have you gone back and listened to any of those things that you did? No, but this is really sad. So my mom and I... She lives in Vegas. I live here, but we share a Netflix account. Okay. And it's really embarrassing because every now and again, I'll see that one of those sequels has been watched by my mom, which is like really sweet and sad at the same time that she like still feels the motherly, like she wants to hear eight year old me, I guess. I have not returned to view any of these, but it's funny you bring that up because I actually, I only got into it because of singing because I was really young, uh, the first Land Before Time that I did, and I actually didn't do the speaking voice. But the kid they hired to do the speaking voice, I guess, couldn't sing. And they'd auditioned me for the speaking voice, but I guess I was too young or whatever. So then they brought me in just to do the singing, which is hilarious because I do remember the speaking voice of Littlefoot and the singing voice of Littlefoot do not link up whatsoever in that movie. (laughs) But I guess they went along with it. And then I got hired to play it, the actual, you know, the whole voice, and then that was how the American Tale thing. And by the way, the woman who really gave me my childhood voiceover career, is named Susan Blue, and she was in Friday the 13th, the the telekinesis, the one where the girl... Oh, seven. She's the mom. She gets killed on the road. Kind of blonde. She's the mom with the throwover cardigan? Yes. 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 (laughs) That was her one on-camera like gig, and then she became one of LA's biggest uh, voiceover directors, and recording, she had a big workshop in the 90s, and but yes, she was a, a Friday the 13th uh, alum. God, um, I love everything goes back to horror with you. I know, it's so weird. But yes, so I did voice those, yes. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was thinking about it this morning. I'm like, hmm, those tracks exist somewhere. I know. I Well, so does me singing uh, a musical number on Seventh Heaven, which is actually out there, which is really painful. And my friends love to just send it to me randomly. It was a musical Valentine's Day episode, and I was 17, 16 or 17, playing Ruthie's boyfriend, but I perform a 40s jazz number with a men's baseball team in a park, and let me just put it this way, like, I could have done, like, a 19-guy gangbang video, and this still would be gayer than any honestly like this is the most embarrassing out of everything in my life this is the this is it this is the embarrassing video that has been sent to me several times but hey you know uh, S- Stallone needed work and he did a porn I needed work I did a musical number on Seventh Heaven which tells me you haven't seen the musical that Stallone and Dolly Parton did no I didn't know that existed called Rhinestone directed by Bob Clark director of Black Christmas and a Christmas story what is this that how have I not heard yeah. of this uh, well 
you know, it it operates about as well as a Stallone musical <laughs> would if you are. And he sings. Oh it. yeah, he and Dolly Parton have a whole like. Oh poor Dolly. There's an album. <laughs> okay. I'll send it to rhinestones? you. Rhinestones? Rhinestone. Rhinestone. Yeah, yeah. Just one rhinestone. Yes, one rhinestone. Okay, that's all you need. That's all you need. Uh, <laughs> I, I gotta look this up. I have a feeling that the comments on Twitter are just gonna be full of YouTube videos of all of, all of these things we're talking I know. about. I, I can't believe I just reminded people to go yeah, check this out. Yeah, it's really embarrassing. Uh, so, uh, before we head off into the night, uh, which is a phrase I say on the show every week. Do you so really? I do. Oh, so. maybe I subconsciously stole it from you. I'll take uh, it. Um, as per usual, when uh, people are on, what have you seen recently that inspires you? Well, I just saw the new Suspiria, and uh, I, have you seen it? You've seen it. Yeah. I I... It was really. It was visually. I thought it was incredible. The thing I liked about it was that the. I'm. I think we have to bury the just immediate reticence to remakes because Suspiria right. was a great example where it's not a remake at all. It is one hundred percent its own thing. This right. this new one, for better or for worse. What you know what I mean? But like I don't even. I couldn't even compare the two when I walked out of it. I thought. There was a lot about it I really loved. There was a, there were pieces of it that I didn't understand why they were in the film, and it kind of, I'm not going to blow anything for anybody, but it, it first of all, you should see it. I think right. I would recommend seeing it just because it's beautifully made, and, um, but it's interesting. There's a kind of trend I've noticed, and I wanted to ask you about it. Actually, the okay. question for you on your own show. Oh, this happens every so often. It's horrifying. Um, <laughs> Do you find that now with the sort of what's happened in recent years with the kind of, I wouldn't say rebirth, but the re bringing to prominence of the horror art film with The Witch, uh, It Comes at Night, um, Hereditary, Suspiria, you know, there's this kind of thing that I'm noticing now, which is it's as long as it's in an art film package and yeah. ribbon, right? Critically, the kind of underlying message that the critics love these films, you know, most of the time, they really, you know, but the wording of it is always, you know, this isn't a horror film, really. Right. This is a dark psychological family drama or a, an exploration of, of misogyny or whatever in the guise of a horror film. And what's kind of interesting to me about that is that's great, but it's sort of saying it's not good enough to just be a good horror film it's still the dirty word it, well, it's that we're a, excusing by the good drama that's going you well, know what I mean if you wanted to ask a question that's gonna like set me off on a thing then yes you asked the right question uh, this has been going on a while uh, of course we often talk about how horror is received still as the black sheep mm -hmm. of the industry for some people it's a dirty word but I will say it here I've said it before and I'm happy to like put it out there and I'm saying this as a working screenwriter who has no reservation saying it, but there is not a studio in Hollywood that was not saved at one time or another by a horror That's film. That's true. So for studios to continually act like the word horror is a dirty word is bullshit because I know for a fact all of them would have closed their doors ages ago if it wasn't for the power of a horror movie. I enraged Michael Verratti. I can see it in his <laughs> Every time this comes about, and it's been going on since like Silence of the Lambs won Best Picture. Mm -hmm. And that's as far back as, what, 92? Yeah. Yeah. So when Silence of the Lambs won, they wanted to call it a thriller. Silence of the Lambs is a horror movie. Yeah. When someone eats somebody else, 
It's a fucking horror. Well, even movie. The Exorcist, which was yeah. nominated, is yeah. a horror. Yeah, and it also, by the way, the studios thing, yes, but also with actors. Right. You know, this is part of the struggle I find right. with, for instance, this film that I was just telling you about that I'm going to make when it comes together. Right. It's tough because certain actors and actresses, when you approach, particularly not so much them, but their agents, agents and yeah. managers, I have to word it as well, this is really a deep character study. Right. In the guise of a horror film. Now, what I actually is true is this is a deep character story and it's a horror film. Right. It's not, one is not apologizing for the other. Do you know what mm -hmm. I mean? And even that was what interested me with Suspiria was, you know, Luca Guadagnino is obviously this very acclaimed, very respected director right now with Call Me By Your Name. This is his first real f horror foray. Right. And I did feel, you know, there's a, it's been talked about a lot about the Suspiria remake. There's a lot of um, additional material, subtext, storyline, links to World War II. There's, you know, all this kind of other element that's going on. And while I respected all of what was happening in the film, when I, when I walked out of it, I went, you know, I wonder what this movie would have been like if all the extra meat that was there that kind of felt like it was justifying the film's existence in right. the horror universe. Well, it's okay that we have these violent scenes because we're also talking about things like the Holocaust and, you know, really important issues. Right. So this is more than just a beautiful, well-made, stylish horror film. And I thought, well, what if you cut all that Yeah. Well, I and got to the root of it? I think <clears throat> that there has been a trend where in the art community... Uh, genre is is treated as lesser than yeah uh and that's why we get phrases like elevated horror yeah. or postmodern horror but and, and this comes up with guests all the time where when people say they don't like horror movies it's because culturally the there is a singular idea of what a horror movie is and people usually think of gore or like you know like torture but that's porn. slasher that it's is not but, but like somehow the zeitgeist has aligned that word with that image but horror is a genre and genres are vast Yes. And so like when people say I don't like horror movies, I always say that that, that categorically cannot be true because I guarantee there's something. There's something. Yeah. And even when they're when people say, oh, well, actors won't want to do a horror film right. or actresses particularly. Right? right. There's this actor stigma. I'm like, OK, so Mia Farrow and Rosemary's Baby, Ellen Burstyn in The Exorcist, Jodie Foster in Silence of the Lambs, S.C. Davis in The Babadook, now Tony Collette in Hereditary is getting all this. It's like you look through. It's pretty often the big career like push or resurgence of right. holy shit this person's great is often in a horror, horror film and so i don't understand culturally what the pushback is but i've always you know and i know exactly what you're talking about it's been a, a course of frustration for me uh, for a very long time but horror by its very foundations is inherently a genre of subversion and when right. you use art in that manner you can use it to say things that you may not otherwise be able to say using allegory, using whatever. I think that's whatever. what the whole beauty of it is. Yeah. And so <clears throat> in that way, I think it's one of the most powerful genres. And yes, there's a lot of popcorn movies in there. There's a lot of silliness. There's right. a lot of like, you know, exploitative stuff. But, you know, that's true of any genre. Any genre. And so I think that horror, when at its most wrong it, like it is the most powerful genre because you walk out and you think about things yeah yeah we talked about last time but you know the, the the film i made i couldn't have explored the subjects of 
child sexual abuse and loss of a parent and grief and loss of sanity and alcoholism and, you know, all the kind of issues that are woven in that movie in any other genre. I mean, I could have, if I wanted to make a really depressing, long, whiny drama that nobody wants to see. But the And be- no one would have produced it. No, you know, when you exactly. Take, when you take dramas in from, this is very industry side conversation. Yeah. If you take a drama in that's too heavy, they'll tell you it's too dark and they won't make it. But if you, it's a horror film, correct. that's yeah. okay. Yeah. yeah. So sometimes you have to use that allegory to communicate the message. And I mean, of course, we... We don't have to. You and I prefer to. I mean, yes, fortunately, yeah. it's what we love. But you're right. right, right. It is yeah. It is a way to do it. And anyway, yes. yes. Thank you for your two cents. I was curious. Well, thank you. Get interviewed on my own show. I know. Well, uh, yes, I think we've hit that time. Oh, no. I, well, not oh, no, because we're about to unleash a treat oh, on that's the audience. Right. So what you are about to hear is your uh, first listen to... Track seven? Yes. Track seven <laughs> on Thomas's new album, Into the Night. This song, as we discussed, is called Boys in Eyeliner. Do you have anything you want to say before we go into this? Just drift, drift away with it. <laughs> I will say that uh, Thomas gave me free reign to choose any song off of the album to play today. And I picked this one. And I believe my actual quote to you via text was, I like it because it's a song that you can dance to. It's a song that you can have sex to. It's a song that you could be spooky to. And that is why I said, yes, let's play it. <laughs> yes. So uh, without further ado, the Dead for Filth premiere of Boys and Eyeliner.
Well, there you have it, Boys and Eyeliner. And uh, oh my God, I fucking love this track. I have to tell you. Um, so you know, just for for the record, uh, where can people get the record? So the album will be out everywhere, um, December fifteenth. iTunes, you know, the whole the whole digital shebang. We also are going to be releasing. Um, this airs on Friday, right? Yes. This, right. So leading up to it and once it's out, we're making a lot of really uh, great videos that are coming out with a lot of really great collaborators and people that you and I both love, which I haven't even told you about that yet. Great. So there's going to be a lot of video art um, and then performances live. We're kind of figuring out once once the record's out. But yeah, I, I really, it's funny, I've never really pushed to get an album out there like I am with this one, but it's because I really think it's good and i really think that uh the us's of the world will will really respond to it so well i certainly did i know thank god uh thomas thank you again for joining us i am so honored to be back i love being here you and i could do this for like nine hours at a time that's the problem it's true uh and uh you know who, who's to say there won't be uh, a trilogy at some point of episodes some point <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, yeah, so please, listeners, check out Into the Night dropping on December 15th. As always, check out Thomas's uh, film work. Uh, you know, we listed so many things. He's been acting for, for a long time, and he's got so many wonderful performances. Uh, he's an amazing director and a dear, dear friend. Oh, I love him so much. I love you, Michael. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> this has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti, yours always in Glam and Gore. Good night and good luck. 
Dead for Filth is a Reverie original podcast, executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, LaShawn McGee, Chris Rodriguez, and Damian Pelletione. The show is produced by Drew Phillips and sound engineered and edited by Josh Perkins. Download the Reverie app and use the code FILTH for 25% off your first three months.